Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? The Doc Project is back next week. One week after the rains began to fall in this part of BC, the floodwaters in the Fraser Valley are finally receding, revealing the scale of the damage. Farms laid waste, thousands of animals dead inside barns. Elsewhere, mudslides took people's lives, rising rivers ruined homes and livelihoods. Today, we bring you River Above, Trouble Below, a special program looking at the way forward for the province and the nation after a week of disaster that brought home the magnitude of the climate crisis. He come knocking on my door and said, Sister, I think you better pack a bag. When the creek went, it took out uh, houses and garages and property, and it was a disaster. There was a big wall of debris that came down with trees, and there was power lines snapping. It was, it was a nightmare. We were running for our lives when the, when the water came. Obviously, uh, extremely concerned about the situation in British Columbia right now. Thousands of people affected across the province. Wildfires, heat domes, and now debilitating floods that we have never seen before. The intense, sustained rains that hit the region a week ago had a domino effect, triggering landslides, fracturing highways, and prompting a new level of worry about the future. And now we're seeing an, another side of, of these devastations. And so I'm feeling as a parent, you know, what is the right thing to do? What do we do so that, so that our children have a future? Those are good questions. And today, we dig into some of the answers. Let's start with the river that rained from above. My name's Marty Ralph. I'm uh, the director of the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I'm a meteorologist and scientist, and uh, I'm trying to work on storms that make a lot of rain and snow and see if we can predict them better and use that information. If you want to understand what happened in B.C., ask Marty Ralph. That poetic, evocative phrase, atmospheric river, disguises what can be a potential disaster in the making. An atmospheric river is essentially a river in the sky, but it's a river of water vapor instead of a river of liquid, like on land. They tend to be 500 miles wide and 1,000 miles long or so. If you were to slice across one on average, you would find about 25 Mississippi rivers worth of water vapor being conveyed. So let's use the lingo Marty Ralph uses. These are ARs. We used to call them the Pineapple Express, another pleasing image evoking warm winter rains from Hawaii. And Ralph says they only flow to certain regions of the planet. The west coast of mid-latitude continents are sort of ground zero for where they hit the most. But here's where ground zero gets even more dangerous. It's when the river meets those staggering peaks soaring above the west coast. When that feature hits the mountains, it rides up and over the mountains. And when the air goes up, it cools, condenses into clouds, and can form precipitation. Precipitation. Rain and lots of it. Ralph says climate change means those rivers are packing an even greater punch. In a warmer climate, 
the water vapor content can be greater because warm air can hold more water vapor. And that basically means additional fuel for the ARs. Now here's where a potential fix comes in, a new way to warn of the dangers that may be coming. Ralph has been developing a system similar to that used for hurricane season. It analyzes approaching atmospheric rivers days ahead and ranks them from one to five on a scale of potential damage. Threes on average are millions of dollars of damage, fours are tens of millions, and fives are hundreds of millions. And 25% of the AR-5s actually have generated billion-dollar disasters. The AR that hit BC, it roared in as a Category 4 to 5. First and foremost is it's been very wet prior to the storm. Secondly, there were two ARs back-to-back. -back. Both those ARs were quite strong, AR-4s, maybe even verging on 5. So the landscape, the rivers, the soils, the hill slopes were already quite wet. And when the, the last of the storms hit, uh, it hit a landscape that was just primed to take almost all of that rain and turn it into water in the rivers. So the landscape was prepared to react strongly. One last piece of the story though, there was a bit of a kicker at the end of this last AR. There was a second pulse of strong vapor transport and that caused the AR to stall a bit more over the same area than it would have. And for this pulse of extra strong vapor transport to come after all of the other rain had already fallen. Throughout today's show, you'll hear the voices of people who lived through the disasters these ARs caused, people like Noah Morse. He didn't see what was coming, but he could hear the mountain above him move as he sat in his car beside his brother-in-law, Luke Chatter, on Highway 99, just north of Vancouver. It's a sound he can't really describe. Not really. I mean, it's, uh, it's something you'll never forget. It's a roar of, a, you know, uh, rock and trees. And, and it's, it's something that, yeah, you, I couldn't see it. Uh, I could just feel it. And before we knew it, it was a split second. Before we knew it, it just, yeah, I felt it. It hit, it hit us uh, on my side and we uh, were pushed off the road. And then all of a sudden we found ourselves opening our eyes and we were upside down and uh, in, the, in just darkness, in mud. They could have died there. No one knew that. He was thinking about his 10-month-old son when he suddenly saw an escape route. He and Luke scrambled out of the car and back up to the road, now caught between two huge hills of mud and rock. And when we got up there, we were met with these two ladies kind of frantically uh, looking around for a loved one that... Uh, that was missing and uh, uh, stunned and, uh, you know, soaking wet. And it, even one of the ladies, even while she's frantically looking for someone, she saw that we were freezing. She went and grabbed um, a jacket uh, out of her car. I mean, this is the type of people that were there that day. Noah could hear people shouting from the other side of the slides. Eventually, an off-duty firefighter appeared, rope in hand, ready to haul him to safety. And he looked at me and uh, he just said, you're going and he grabbed me and I grabbed the rope and I walked over and it felt like there was a group over there that had been there prepared for hours waiting for us. They first aid, blankets, um, Luke stayed back a little bit with the firemen. He was in a better shape than me and he was able to, they were, you know, looking for survivors. They just, there's nothing. It was just, it, the, you couldn't see anything.
In the days since, the coroner has reported that at least four people were found dead in that same slide. A fifth person is still missing. No one knows how lucky he is, and he worries it could happen again. That worry is what Matthias Jakob thinks about for a living. Jakob is a geoscientist with the consulting firm BGC Engineering in Vancouver. He specializes in landslide risk and preparedness. He's been watching what unfolded across BC closely, and he has some ideas about what could be done better. Matthias, hello. Hello, Laura. You've spent many years studying landslides in BC and other provinces. How do atmospheric rivers affect the frequency and severity of landslides? So a landslide feeds off a number of variables. One is antecedent moisture condition. What that really means is how much has it rained or how much snowmelt has there been prior to the big storm arriving. Then uh, a landslide needs a steep slope, goes without saying, and then it needs high intensities. So think of a sponge where uh, you pour water on top. If you pour it really, really uh, slowly, then the water comes in at the top and flows out at the bottom. If you pour it really, really fast, the sponge can't take it up. And if the sponge is on your cutting board and you uh, tilt it in your kitchen, then eventually it will start to slide. And landslides behave somewhat similar to that. So once these ingredients are all together, then we become more susceptible to landslides. And these atmospheric rivers in terms of their higher frequency and higher moisture package, that means more landslides and possibly larger landslides, which means they run out further into the valley bottoms. So now <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question that might sound like I'm only interested in this for myself, but it is a part of what you've been studying. I live on the North Shore of Vancouver. You looked at the possibility of these kinds of slides on the North Shore. Tell me what you found. So back about 11 years ago, we did a study on the effects of climate change on landslides, and we found that not really all that dramatic, maybe 10%, 15% increases in the frequency. Since then, however, the numerical models have become much smarter. And we found out that now, in, in a study 11 years later, that the landslides could, in fact, uh, quadruple by the end of the century. Uh, so go up by 300%. And become maybe 50% larger. So if you have a given storm now um, that may produce 20 landslides, and then by the end of the century, the same storm, because it's more powerful, could uh, trigger as much as 80 landslides. So the number would go up as well as their size. That's a little frightening. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those ripple effects of climate change. Uh, we call it like a third order effect because it's not directly related to warming, but indirectly through increases in precipitation. But it is certainly something that we should recognize will likely happen and therefore need to manage it accordingly. Okay, let's talk about managing it then. You've been working with Environment and Climate Change Canada on a new warning system for these kinds of severe rainstorms. Tell me how a system like that would help. Yeah, so the warning would be very specific. It would say an atmospheric river of a certain category, much like the hurricane categories that we're quite familiar with. So we would have categories for these atmospheric rivers from one to five or one to six. And then each category would have distinct consequences associated. So imagine a media release that says an atmospheric river category four is approaching the west coast of British Columbia. 
Uh, it is a very dangerous and long-lasting event that will result in multiple washouts, debris flows, landslides, uh, bank erosion, bridge closures. Um, all non-essential travel should stop by and then the date. So a system whereby it's very clear to everybody, the media, the general public, emergency managers, what exactly that storm packs in terms of its consequence. So we would have heard like days ago that there was a category four storm coming our way and this is what we need to do to deal with it. Precisely. And that would be analogous to what you would hear in Louisiana or Mississippi or Florida when uh, a category four hurricane arrives. Only that the hurricane scale is, is related simply or exclusively to wind speed versus our system would be combining how much it will rain, what the previous rainfall has been, the antecedent moisture condition, what the runoff would look like, what the rainfall intensities would look like, and then what area would be affected, what the population would be that is affected, and so on. So it would be a multivariate system. I got to say, this makes so much sense. Why hasn't it been done already? It has been in, in California, and the Californians uh, released those forecasts for the entire west coast of the United States and actually uh, the southern part of Canada. You can download that and you get a warning every six hours. Um, but in, in Canada, it was now realized that having an analogous system is important and a research group was founded. Uh, we want to make our system, our being the Canadian, a little bit more advanced yet than the American one. But do you think uh, it should be brought up just sooner just because of the fact that we're only in November and there could be a lot more of this to come? That's a very good question. Um, there's certainly, I mean, this event has clearly shown that there is a strong demand for that. Now, some areas that were especially hard hit by this latest storm in BC were the same areas that were devastated by wildfires over the summer. And I'm wondering if that's a coincidence. Not at all. Uh, the fact is that after wildfires, the trees get incinerated, meaning they don't absorb water through their needles and leaves. They can no longer take up water through their roots. On top of it, the forest floor burns entirely and turns into ash. This ash has a tendency to make it much easier for these fluid landslides, so-called debris flows, to be initiated. Normally, on a slope, which is covered by healthy trees, it may take a 1 in 50 year storm to trigger a debris flow. After these extreme wildfires, it may be a 1 in 1 year uh, rainfall event. In other words, they become almost certain. Well, what, what, what is the engineering answer then? I, I mean, elevated highways or I've driven along the Sea to Sky many times and I've seen wire netting over the sides of the road to keep the rocks from falling onto the highway. What's the engineering answer? We have a, a huge toolbox, um, but they're all quite expensive. So with regard to river erosion, um, that could be to really strengthen the side of the road with very large wrap, that is very large angular boulders. Uh, in some cases, they may need to be replaced by concrete walls that have deep foundations. Uh, in many cases with the landslides that come down, there needs to be a debris basin, a debris barrier, a netting, spe specific high tensile strength netting. There are books written about the different mitigation measures. But just to give you an example, Laura, in Austria alone, there's maybe two or 300,000 structures like that in place. And Austria fits several times into British Columbia. Compare that to British Columbia, and maybe there's 
a hundred of such structures. So we have a huge lack of these kind of structures um, along our highway and railway system. And the, the reason for that is we don't have the same density, development density, nor tech space compared to, say, Austria or Switzerland or France. And what kind of costs are we talking about here? Millions? Billions? Billi bil billions. Billions. Yes. Wow. Okay. BC is obviously, it's not the only province that is susceptible to heavy rain, flooding, landslides. What lessons does this past week hold for other communities across Canada and even around the world? Well, it is really only a question of time until other communities in Canada, be they in the prairies, be they out on the East Coast, are being hit by such extreme events. Nobody is immune at all. They may unfold in different ways. If it's in a flat prairie province, then it's probably mostly flooding or could be an ice storm and so on. Uh, in mountainous terrains, of course, the Yukon, BC, Alberta, um, as well as the eastern provinces, it can manifest itself as landslides and other processes. It is a new era. Matthias Jakob, thank you so much for your insight and your time. It's my pleasure talking to you, Laura. Now, you heard him mention he's working with Environment and Climate Change Canada on an AR warning system for this country. We checked, and the reliability of that system is still being tested. I won't say I saw it coming this fall, but certainly being privy to the information that we had from the, the risk assessment, uh, reading analysis by, by scientists, uh, I certainly would have expected it to come at some point. That's George Heyman. He's BC's Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy. And the risk assessment he mentioned was done two years ago, a 429-page report that digs into how BC could be affected by climate change by the year 2050. Risks including landslides and severe flooding. John Clegg helped to prepare that report. He's a professor emeritus at Simon Fraser University and a specialist in natural hazards. The events of the past year have uh, indicated that maybe we weren't uh, aggressive enough. And this has been a lesson in terms of uh, uh, how rapidly some of these severe weather events are playing out. Now he's urging action. There's somebody in that chain of command who should take these reports seriously and act upon them. Notice he says these reports, plural. Clegg consulted on one, but there were others. One from 2010 about risks to the Coquihalla Highway. Atmospheric rivers were singled out as a specific threat. Then came reports by BC's Auditor General. One from this year found 87 high-risk dams with, quote, significant deficiencies. What I see in in the past is that there's too many reports that get shelved, that collect dust. It's not a matter of looking back that it happened. It's a matter of due diligence and um, reacting to the information that you have at hand. And there's something wrong with the chain of command in government from the level at which research and information are being gathered up to the senior level. So gather the research and then, he says, open the government's wallet, spend the money needed to make the province more resilient to the dangers that are already here. And I would focus on critical infrastructure in that sense. You want to look very closely at uh, roads, rail lines, hospitals, schools, 
Are they at all vulnerable to flooding? Um, if they are, let's correct that problem. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. While floodwaters hit British Columbia this time, the loss of life and property that comes when the waters rise happens right across Canada. Floods cause more damage and cost more in repairs than any other natural disaster. Each year, about a billion dollars, according to the federal government. The scale of this disaster may boost that number even higher. Our next guest says slashing emissions to cut global warming is a must, but so is adapting. And that means more than building berms, levees, and dikes. Jason Thistlethwaite is an associate professor at the University of Waterloo's Faculty of Environment. Hello. Hello. You have been watching and tweeting about the flooding and its impacts on communities. I'm wondering what you thought when you saw all of it unfolding. Flooding is Canada's most costly and common hazard. This is not the usual flood season, though, uh, for Canada, especially in British Columbia. That tends to be the, the spring runoff. So... Uh, in that regard, it, it is a little uh, surprising, uh, concerning, and my thoughts go out to everyone in BC that's uh, struggling with this. Uh, you are not alone. Uh, there are many Canadians that have shared this experience. What about it was surprising to you? For me, it's probably the vulnerability of some of the critical infrastructure. Seeing the Trans-Canada Highway underwater, seeing some of the critical rail links being washed out in some of the mountain passes... There's no other route to access Vancouver's port, and that by volume is the largest port in North America. It's critical to the Canadian economy. It's just a surprising and frustrating that there hasn't been more done to protect the Trans-Canada, especially given that it does travel through the lower mainland and through a floodplain uh, along the Fraser River. And this is what I want to get into with you. But first, I, I just want to turn the, our attention to the town of Merritt. It's been hit especially hard. The wastewater treatment plant was inundated with water and not working, so the entire town was evacuated. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's a really tough situation. That should not happen to the wastewater treatment plant. That's a piece of critical infrastructure. And if you're making a short list of, as a community, the, the things that you would need to defend, that is is way up there alongside emergency services and hospitals. Okay, let's let's travel to Abbotsford now, the situation there, particularly in Sumas Prairie. Why are towns and communities built on floodplains? Well, in that area, one of the main reasons is of the economic benefits. That is highly arable land. Those people are not alone. 80% of Canadian cities have some portion of their land in a floodplain. Where I am in Waterloo, the, the downtown is in a floodplain. And so the reason is mainly historical and economic. The, these locations offer economic advantages. The real tragedy of it, though, is that we know this, that the information has been available in Canada about the location of these floodplains, and yet we've allowed development to continue in these areas. When it comes to Sumas Prairie, what should be done there? I mean, eventually people will want to come back to their farming. Should it happen? Well, that's a question that I think ultimately needs to be left up to the community itself. You know, from the perspective of a flood risk manager, 
there should be no development in the floodplain. Those are farms. It's not dense development like a residential area where damage would be much more significant and you'd be uh, impacting uh, that many more lives. So the community will have to make a decision on whether you decide to rebuild and defend those farms, build higher dikes, dredge the Fraser, uh, make it deeper, um, clean out the drainage ditches on the other side of the river. Or do we as a society recognize that uh, the long-term costs of having settlement in that area uh, exceeds the benefits. And in some cases, communities have made the decision in Canada to offer buyouts to people in exchange for relocation. That is a very difficult conversation uh, to have, and it shouldn't be a conversation we'll be having in the immediate aftermath of a flood. Um, we should be having a, a long process of communication with people living in these high-risk areas, uh, letting them know of their situation and empowering them with resources and information that they need to uh, along with the community, uh, they need to make to ensure that this flooding doesn't happen again. And I guess then the question becomes, where does the money come from for the, all that? Yeah, and I think that's actually where I have the, the biggest problem here. Uh, you know, Local governments, for the most part, are very well aware of where the climate hazards exist in their communities. Uh, you know, They've been there for a long time. They've seen floods happen. They've seen wildfires happen. They kind of have a sense of uh, where the uh, vulnerabilities are. And they can plan for this. But what they don't have are the resources to actually implement strategies to manage that risk in the end. And, and that's where I think we need to see um, far more action on the part of provinces and the federal government to be a much more supporting partner in helping our local governments manage their exposure to these risks. There is a consulting firm that looked at how Liverpool, Nova Scotia could protect itself from flooding related to sea level rise, and the municipal government rejected all the options for being too expensive. So I wonder what could local governments do when they simply don't have the cash? Is there anything else beyond taking your begging bowl to a province or a federal government? Ultimately, yes, but but that's how other countries uh, adapt to climate change and, and implement risk reduction. You know, Liverpool did everything right, right? They they went by the textbook. They said, okay, we'll develop a set of scenarios. We will ultimately decide locally on, on what scenario we pursue. But when there's zero support from the upper tier governments, who certainly have far more resources than the, you know, these small communities, the tax base they draw on, I, I find that really disappointing uh, in a country as wealthy as Canada. Are there communities that have realized the error of their ways and actually moved and done it successfully? Yeah. Um, so I can give you two examples. One is High River, Alberta. So certainly a model for how you learn from uh, living on a floodplain. Uh, the 2013 flood there was particularly devastating. And they offered buyouts to a, a brand new community. I mean, these, these were not cheap homes uh, by any means. Um, and, and by then, property values were increasing and they bought people out of that neighborhood because it existed just uh, you know in the floodplain and they reinforced their uh, berms and dikes around around the river there. Uh, the other example is in Gatineau, Quebec where the provincial government recognized after flooding in 2017 and 2018 that the social costs of rebuilding over the long term just simply weren't worth the benefits. And so in that situation they offered buyouts. Uh, and I think that what you're going to see is this idea around a managed retreat or pulling away from these areas that we know are no longer going to be inhabitable in the future as a result of climate change, uh, this is going to become more and more popular. Um, and they're very hard programs to administer and implement. Uh, there's certainly opposition. You had people living in these areas for generations. Um, they didn't know that they were moving into a floodplain or moving into a high-risk area. We've done nothing to inform them uh, that that's the case. So 
ultimately, I, I don't think it's it's on the property owner to take on such a significant burden as to better understand the, the complete exposure of their property or community to this risk. And, and in my mind, that's why we need governments there to be supportive of this. And there, there have the federal government is taking some actions to, I, I think, expand its capacity to support these types of strategies. What are they offering to do? So the federal government has initiated a National Flood Insurance and Relocation Task Force. This body has been given some authority to deploy a national flood insurance program. So this is something that we need, in, particularly in high-risk areas. So these would be the resources that help people get back on their feet in the event that, you know, the dikes and, and uh, manager retreat don't work, that you do have some damage, that there is some financial capacity there to help you recover and put together a program around uh, manage retreat and then offer resources, offer resources to provinces um, and local governments so that they don't have to use their own tax dollars to help finance those buyouts. But, um, you know, we as a country have benefited from development in these areas at a multiple levels of government. So uh, in, in my mind, I think it's it's an issue of fairness that uh, we as a country recognize these areas and lend a helping hand to help people ultimately decide to relocate if that's the course that the community sees best. You, you have these communities that are starving for cash, and so they continue to allow building and development on floodplains to raise the cash. Is it time that, that things went farther, that they simply be banned from any more development on floodplains? Well, some jurisdictions in Canada already have that rule in place. So Ontario um, has the conservation authorities where development is technically prohibited from being in the floodplain. These are third parties. Um, they are not the municipality. They are not the province. So by creating this third party that um, is a technical scientific based assessment, it's one way of limiting development in the floodplain. This is something that we are starting to see elsewhere. The critical gap before we can make a decision around that, though, is that we do need some information, some authoritative information on where the flood is or where the flood risk is or where the climate hazard is. And that has to come through publicly available maps when these developers are coming into council, that at least it can be exposed to scrutiny. So there are some communities that are, are finding new ways to make money to actually pay for the flood adaptation. Can you tell me about what Halifax and Mississauga are doing? Right. So one of the big risks that we're seeing in Canada is, is actually not the type of flooding that you're seeing in British Columbia, but uh, a different type known as urban flooding. So this is flooding when you get a significant downpour of rain. And oftentimes it happens in urban areas where you don't have a lot of impervious surfaces to absorb the water. So it gets channeled into the stormwater system and inevitably ends up in people's basements. So this is actually the biggest flood risk in Canada. So one thing that some communities are doing is they're more or less implementing a charge called the stormwater charge that helps generate revenue for these communities to tackle those problems. So places like Halifax and um, Mississauga, they have these charges in place. And there's a, a few other cities in Canada that have them as well. And what they're designed to do, more or less, is to incentivize property owners as well as commercial developments, which have huge parking lots, roofs, and other surfaces, to increase the permeability of those surfaces. So there's more on-site water that gets absorbed as opposed to being channeled into the stormwater system. The more impervious surface you have, the higher the charge that you have as a result of that. It creates a separate stream of revenue for the municipality that they can then use annually to help build up flood defenses. And I like that solution because... Ultimately, there's only so much you can do to your property to help protect it from flood risk. But municipalities can do quite a bit, whether it comes to underground stormwater retention, to building bigger size culverts and, and drainage pathways. So there's been so much talk about adaptation in, in the face of, of climate risks. 
I'm I'm wondering though how far all of those steps take people without progress on actually cutting emissions. We have commitments, we have net zero commitments at the municipal level, and that's great. I would like to see the same level of urgency and resources put towards adaptation. So, you know, that's kind of my message to the people in British Columbia today and and across Canada is that we're going to have a bit of a window here over the next uh, six to 12 months where our political leaders are going to be paying attention to this issue. And we really need to hold their feet to the fire and tell them this is unacceptable. This is not a natural disaster. Uh, there are policy problems that led to this, and there are policy solutions that we can implement to avoid this in the future. Well, we'll see if your message is going to be heard. But for the time being, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thanks for the opportunity. You are listening to River Above, Trouble Below, a What on Earth special report. I'm Laura Lynch. We farmers, we care for our product, we care for our animals, we care for our livestock. But there's not just chicken farmers and cow farmers out there. There's our people farming vegetables and crops. My neighbors are in the blueberry and vegetable business. They're also experiencing huge losses as well. Dave Martin's three decades as a chicken farmer was rushing to get his birds to higher ground last weekend. Only half of them made it before the floodwaters rose too high. Unfortunately... Uh, 40,000 birds have died in my barn. So they're under six feet of water right now, and who knows what's going to be like once we get back in there. For Martins and so many others who live and work on the Sumas Prairie, it's a huge economic loss, but also so much more. Millions or billions of dollars that are going to be lost in livestock and economic activity and just the hardship to us farmers. I mean, I'm going to lose it, sorry, to our, to our farms. It's just disheartening. It just didn't need to happen. Martins wants to see more dikes built to keep floodwaters from Washington State out in the future. But he knows what's ahead once he gets back onto his farm. It's a daunting task ahead, but we are resourceful. We will recover. We will rebuild. Dave Martin's emotional reaction betrays the trauma triggered by all of this, trauma that so many are experiencing in the storm's aftermath. Amita Kuttner knows all too well the price to be paid when these disasters strike. In 2005, their mother was killed and father severely injured when their house was crushed in a landslide in North Vancouver, triggered by heavy rains. Amita Kuttner joins me now. Hello. Hello. First of all, I just want to express to you my thanks for your willingness to speak about this, especially given the loss that you've suffered. I really appreciate it. Anything that can help this happen to no one, if possible, or happen far less. So can you tell me what happened in January of 2005? Yeah. So at the time, I was away at boarding school in California, which is the only reason I survived it was about 3.30 in the morning on January 19th after days and days of rain, which I found out years later was an atmospheric river. And I had gotten an email from my mother the night before that actually said that the basement was flooding. And at 3.30 in the morning, the hillside came crashing down onto my house through my parents' bedroom and killed my mother, which they found later. My dad happened to be in the bathtub at the time because he had been up late cleaning the basement and had fallen asleep. And he managed to stand up. And so he got transported down the hill and stayed alive, amazingly. Smashed to pieces, but alive. What had caused the mudslide was a bit complicated. 
there was an illegal pond, I believe, installed at the property above, and fill had been added, which exacerbated the mudslide risk. But there was actually a known risk of mudslides for that slope, and technically, really, there shouldn't have been a development there in the first place. You think growing up, and I think as people, we we think that we're not going to be having risks taken for us. We're not going to be put in harm's way on purpose, in a sense. So what we found out later was that prior to the development of my house and a few near it, there had been a study and it had basically determined that it was not safe to build there unless a whole bunch of steps were taken and the district or the municipal government did not actually take those steps. And they instead sent a letter around to everybody asking them to do so, but also requesting their secrecy, which in the end resulted in people not following those guidelines, not doing the slope preparation measures that would be necessary to make it safe, and then having this truth hidden from us so that my family never knew about the risk at all. And the slide risk was then exacerbated and resulted in what it did. Since then, uh, you've, I know, been involved in making sure that th these kinds of things don't happen again. Can you tell me what North Vancouver has done? Yeah, I was happy to connect a number of years ago with the people from North Shore Emergency Management to hear about the work they'd done. And so the district actually has gotten more rigorous about their development plans, their drainage systems, and their emergency response. So they've learned a lesson because of your tragedy. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, that's what I look for anybody to get out of this. When, when something like this happens, the most that you can hope for is that the lesson is learned as broadly as possible to prepare so that this doesn't have to happen to other people. You had mentioned that communities had, or, or officials from other communities had come knocking at the door of North Vancouver and said, what should, yes. should, what should we do? And then they didn't do it. Yeah. So what I had heard is that the people from North Vancouver tried to spread the message as much as possible and, and urge other municipalities to do some sort of preparation. And they found that it was difficult. And part of this was because people in, in communities that really want to do this preparedness were having trouble getting traction in the sense that when they brought it up, people didn't take the risk seriously. Or they asked North Vancouver, how did you get the district to actually care about this? And the answer was, well, we lost a person and we lost a neighborhood. And so it became imperative, it became important, it became politically expedient to do so, even necessary. And so without those examples in those other communities, they weren't able to get that support for the same sort of preparedness. What do you think of that? I, <laughs> I think, I feel more than I think about it, I think. And, and that's that I think that it's very, it's very human. We are very much a product of our own inherent psychology and therefore our, our inability to think of things beyond the regular scope of our existence. It's hard to make concrete a risk that has never actually been something that we've experienced. And the other thing is just frustration that we can't, with all our technology and our community building and our learning, that we can't get past that barrier. I want to talk now just about mental health and the trauma that, that these things can evoke. Um, you've spoken about how the, the events in, in British Columbia 
over the last several days have been triggering for you and, and it causes you to relive the trauma of those events. I'm wondering how you cope. Good counseling. <laughs> I, I've been, you know, I have PTSD. and I've been working with um, therapists for years on, on trauma counseling, but it's difficult. And I, you know, I'm listening to people tell the stories of watching their homes be swept away and it hits very deeply. You know, it's one thing to empathize with people whose experiences you don't recognize and another to know exactly how they feel. But I think I cope by trying to work harder to do something about our future, prepare communities in, in one way or another. But in the very minute that I have to think about it and that I'm faced with these images of mudslides, I mostly feel compassion and connection for the people who have to go through it now. There is still an avoidance of trauma, of, of discussing trauma and its effects on everyone. And the way that we think about recovery from trauma, the way that we actually treat it, is not holistic in the sense that it is not actually taking into account all the pieces of, of the person, of, of the self, of their interaction with everybody around them, and this how surreal it can be to try to go back to life when everyone else seems unfazed from it. But I think behind that, there's also the number of people that it does affect who do not have the resources, who do not have the connection to community to be able to work through that. But yes, in a sense, there is this, the, the discussion has surfaced. People do not ignore it the same way. People are willing to talk about climate grief, climate anxiety, loss to natural disaster. If you could offer advice or support to those who have been traumatized by these events or who are being traumatized a second time or a third time because of the heat dome or the forest fires, what would you say to them? What would you say they should, they should be doing? I would say more than anything else, give yourself space, time, and patience. To know that getting past this, getting through this, getting to a point where you feel comfortable again, you feel whole again, you feel safe again, is possible and it will happen, but it will take time. The road will have ups and downs and to not be afraid to seek community, to seek support, and to also acknowledge that this, simply acknowledge that this is, this is incredibly difficult. And caring for oneself and the complexity of trauma is important. I thank you so much for, for sharing all of this. And I'm sorry for the losses that you've suffered. Um, but I think that your words may provide great comfort to people who are suffering now. Thank you. Thank you. The focus now is on fixing what's broken, highways, homes, and farms. But there's no doubt people's spirits are broken too, just trying to cope with what's happened, not to mention this year's heat dome and wildfires. That sadness and trauma shouldn't be ignored. It's a lesson Katie Hayes learned while doing research in the town of High River, Alberta, years after the 2013 flood. She's now a policy analyst with Health Canada and an author of a forthcoming federal report called Health of Canadians in a Changing Climate. Katie Hayes, hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me. What's your reaction to what's unfolded in B.C.? 
Yeah, it, I think my first reaction is devastation, obviously, and a feeling of just um, so much compassion to all of those people who have been experiencing these devastating floods in the kind of cascading effect of after experiencing the heat dome in the summer and subsequent wildfires. I'm wondering, though, what mental health issues should people and those providing support to be aware of now and, and in the days and, and weeks to come? You know, in the immediate aftermath of these types of flooding events, people are going to be experiencing potential trauma, depression, anxiety, grief, grief of the loss of their homes, of livelihoods, of beloved pets. So there is going to be some ongoing experiences of grief and trauma and anxiety and fear as well. There are hundreds of migrant workers who have been affected by this. I'm wondering in your research, what, what's the mental health fallout of disasters like this on vulnerable or marginalized populations? Yeah, it's quite interesting. My research in High River, there was a, a meatpacking plant that had many foreign and temporary workers working there. And when we looked at the aftermath of the flooding, many folks experienced a disconnection from community. They often didn't have paperwork at hand um, to be provided with free mental health care access. So we know that those who are most marginalized are maybe left behind. So we do need to make sure that we're looking out for those who are most marginalized and making sure that those communities and those networks are in place to to make sure that those resources are there. Another important piece is to make sure that access to mental health care and access to care in general and supports is um, offered in other languages other than English and French. And, and what about parents? What, what can they do right now mm -hmm. to support their children who are going through all of this? key component is really listening, listening to the needs of their children and youth who are experiencing often a lot of fear, uncertainty, um, not knowing where they may be, where they are. Many of them have been displaced. So really having an open ear to what um, our children are experiencing on the ground, um, trying to provide some sense of normalcy and also routine is also quite um, helpful for children who've been experiencing the distress and the displacement related to the flooding. I'm wondering about, is there, if if there's a role for schools to step in and help, mindful of the fact that in some communities the schools are, are shut down. Exactly. Um, and in High River, for example, that was a key a key approach is having the schools come in and talk about mental health care. And for many folks who are online and virtual, um, be some access to online resources that schools can provide as well in these cases. And for parents, for example, wanting to talk about how to navigate this with their children or their own distress, there's the wellnesstogether.ca um, website as well that offers um, mental health care throughout the country. So if somebody is seeking help in BC, where can they turn to for support? Well, in general, in Canada, we have the wellnesstogether.ca is what I mentioned. The silver lining of the pandemic is that's been a, a freely available uh, virtual resource that anyone in Canada can access by phone or by uh, internet, for example. We do know that because there's been a declared state of emergency, there's often uh, mental health professionals that will come into the communities. Um, and also to note that many first responders are trained in mental health first aid and psychological first aid to be able to provide some of that on the ground immediate support for people experiencing distress. I'm curious to know if you can speak to this, the feeling of guilt that, that some people who somehow didn't end up in harm's way because of some, a fluke circumstance. How, how do people cope with that? 
in the research, it's been demonstrated, particularly with flooding events, that people who haven't actually had their homes or their businesses or their livelihoods affected by flooding events can also experience stress, trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, as well. Um, and this can come from a feeling of guilt, as you mentioned, feeling as though somehow that they've been spared, but not quite understanding what that means in the grand scheme of things. Um, another important emotion to uh, consider or emotional response to consider is vicarious trauma. So many people who have not necessarily experienced the flooding event, they may have family members who are experiencing it right now, or they may be watching it on TV or hearing it in the news. And it really triggers a sense of concern, of distress in them seeing these things take place to their fellow Canadians, to their fellow neighbors or uh, family members, as I mentioned. The last time you were on our program, you talked about your research uh, in the town of High River. Um, in 2013, the town and its people suffered widespread damage, displacement. Some even died after the Highwood River breached its banks. What did the federal government learn from that? What has been learned is the importance of providing um, emergency response and, and care and providing those mental health resources um, after these events. I know that um, in the chapter on mental health and well-being that's uh, forthcoming in the um, National Climate Change and Health Assessment on the health of Canadians in a changing climate, we really talk about the need um, to look at um, sustained mental health care. So making sure that mental health care um, is not only just in those emergency response situations, but a longer term um, type of resource. So that, that that's, I think, what you would be looking for in, in communities that have been affected this time around is, is mental health supports in place, specifically yeah. targeted. Yeah, not only mental health supports in place, but also what, what I've learned in the research as well is that for many people, um, they may not want to access mental health care, formal mental health care, because we know that the stigma of mental illness is, is still alive and well. So for many people, what they found to be really supportive of their mental health and well-being is actually fostering social connections and social networks. Oftentimes, we don't talk about this as, as a form of mental health care. We think of it as a social connection, but really that has come up time and time again in the research as something that is quite supportive for people, whether that's getting reinvolved in some sort of activity, whether it's physical activity, whether it's getting reengaged in some form of club or um, event. So really, there is no one size fits all to mental health care. It's really going to depend on the individual and the circumstance that they're experiencing. Um, but it is really important to widen and cast our net a little bit wider when we think about the types of resources that support our well-being. With all you've seen and all you've studied, um, and, and also because you're do, working on this issue for the federal government, do you think there's recognition from Ottawa that more resources are needed for communities to deal with the mental health effects of climate disasters? One of the key findings from my research is that, you know, mental health care globally is often considered, you know, secondary to physical health, but that's really starting to shift. I think particularly with the global pandemic, we've seen a rise in the need to address the mental health care needs of, of all of our communities across the nation. And I think now as well with the next big public health threat, uh, climate change, we're really starting to see that there's a continued need to support the mental health and, and well-being of Canadians. Clearly something very important to pay attention to going forward. Katie Hayes, thank you. Thank you very much. If you want to see where community comes together to support each other and to heal, look to Yarrow, B.C. in the Fraser Valley flood zone. 
forklifts are carrying thousands of sandbags, all packed by dozens of volunteers at the local sports field. As of now, we've done at least 10, if not 12, dump truck loads full. And I don't know how many sandbags are on a pallet, but it's upwards of 3,000, I would think. That's Darnell Barkman, a local pastor. He's helping coordinate the effort to ensure that people who need sandbags can get them. Barkman knows people are drawing strength from each other and from simply being able to help. Everybody who's come back has wanted to pitch in somehow and be involved in serving somehow. And I think people really just need an outlet to, like everybody's got pent up, they're all anxiety scrolling on Facebook, what's happening, what's the new news. There's a phrase Barkman uses to talk about people's response to the anxiety they feel about what's happened and what may happen next. He calls it baking nervous. People want to keep their hands busy so they can turn off their phone and not look at bad news or whatever. And I think baking nervous is a phrase that's emerged here when you know there's, there's men and women at home who are making sourdough or desserts or something. And then they go, well, where am I going to bring all this stuff I just made? And so that's another outlet we provide. We have mouths who are happy to eat delicious food. So. The result isn't just full stomachs and full sandbags. It's also a solution, a way to soothe all those frayed nerves. I don't feel overwhelmed. I feel like we're all focused on what we can control. You know, filling up bags, moving them to people's houses, that kind of stuff. And so I think a lot of people do really feel overwhelmed, but I think we're just trying to focus on what we can do instead of what-if questions. Thanks this week to the CBC's Katie Nicholson, Susanna De Silva, Andrew Lee, Catherine Hansen, and Jake Costello. And always the What on Earth team. Associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders. Producer Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.